Our reading from 1 Samuel. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. But the things, but this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So also they have done are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will take your male and female slaves, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but we are determined to have a king over us, so that we also may be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, We want a king. Let that king be you. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you have been reading 1 Samuel, just for the fun of it, since we're doing this continuous reading in Samuel? I suggest it. So last week... I preached on 1 Samuel 4 and referred back to 1 and 2 and 3. This week we're preaching on 1 Samuel 8. Well, a lot of stuff happens in 5, 6, and 7. So I'm going to give you a little history of that so that you know how the flow of the story is going. So, In 1 Samuel 4, there was a lot of fighting going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And in chapter 4, the Israelites were defeated, and in a rash of stupidness, they took the Ark of the Covenant to Shiloh to lead them into battle. But they made one mistake— They didn't ask God if that's what they were supposed to do. 
So the Philistines defeated the Israelites. They captured the ark. Eli, you remember Eli the prophet, the temple. His two sons were killed in battle. And Eli heard that the ark was was captured and that his sons were dead, fell off his bench and broke his neck and died. And then the Philistines in victory took their Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple with their god, Dragon. And like I said to the kids, he fell numerous times. And sickness was coming upon the people of that town. They were getting tumors. And so they passed the Ark of the Covenant to other towns. And pretty soon they were fed up with this ark, and they sent it back to Israel with gifts of gold. Sounds like this was a long time. Actually, it was only seven months, and then the ark of the covenant stayed with, wait for it, Kiriath-Jerium, the people of Kiriath-Jerium. And if you think that's mispronounced, go ahead. You can pronounce it any way you want. And it stayed there for 20 years. And as you will find out later, the ark blessed those people. So after the story of the ark, Samuel was preaching to the people in chapter 7, telling them, put away your false gods and worship only the Lord. And, as they did this, the Israelites defeated the Philistines, regained much of the territory that they had lost in earlier battles. And as Samuel was traveling around, there was peace in the nation. The people, though, had a problem. They were on the mountainside of the land to the east. To the west was a plain where food could be grown. And then there was the ocean, and the Philistines had the land to the east. And so the Philistines and the Israelites are worried about the land in the middle because that is the land that would feed them. And so the people had a problem. Do they trust in God like they had been doing with the judges, including up to and including Samuel? Or do they ask for a king? to lead them into battle. So there's a little history about having a king. Eight preaching points, you might say. The first one is, God becomes their king at the Exodus. God delivers the Israelis from the Egyptian bondage and gives them his law and gives them his covenant and he is their king. And as a king, he saved them in many battles. 
Second point, as he delivers the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, he gives a prophecy in Deuteronomy that they will have a king and they will ask for a king. We'll get to that point at the end of the sermon. Third, chapter 8 is the first account of the people asking, demanding a king. Samuel and God at first say no, and then God says yes, let them have a king. Fourth point in chapter 8. The main point of chapter 8 is not the evil of Israel rejecting God, nor is it their idolatry, worshiping other gods, although that's going on. The main point of chapter 8 is the high cost of a king. We'll come to more of that. Fifth, the demand for a king does not come from the elders, which we would think that it might, because those are the people who were bound to gain the most. They would be the 1%. But it was the whole people of God that wanted a king. Sixth point, from chapter 4 until chapter 8, Samuel is the judge and brings peace, and in chapter 8, his rule comes to an end. Seven, there's a summary of Samuel's life. He spoke to God all the time for the people. He was the greatest judge that they ever had. During his rule or his service, Israel reached its highest worshiping spiritual life before God. And in 1 Samuel, there is no rebuke against Samuel. And just a slight uh, complaint that his sons weren't doing the best job in leading. Eight. The reasons they wanted a king. One was the Ark of the Covenant was in that town that I tried to pronounce, and you know where it is. And Samuel was soon to be out of commission, too. So they wanted a king to do their work of faith. So, chapter 8 talks a lot about the cost of a king. And Samuel spells out what it is. But first we have to remember how the rule of the judges happened. In the book of Judges, we see that there is no king, no palace, no standing army. When Israel is attacked, a volunteer army is gathered together, and this army is supported and supplied by the families of those soldiers who fought. There is no administration. There are no counselors, there's no advisors, there's no servants, there's no staff, 
There's no one to support the king's rule. It's an informal system, and it's very inexpensive because God is their king, and it worked. But the people wanted a king to act quickly so that they would not have to trust in each other. They wanted a king, but it was costly. The saying is, once Israel is ruled by a king, life on the farm would never be the same. That's kind of a takeoff of World War I. But life on the farm would be changed forever. The king would draft their sons into military service. The king would make them drive his chariots. The king would make them as horsemen. The king would make them as infantry. The king would make some of them officers. And because it's a standing army, some of the Israelite sons would you be used to plant and harvest crops and build and maintain the military equipment and to stockpile the non-military items. And it wasn't just young men. Israelites' daughters who once sat or served at their father's table would now serve at the king's table, and they would be performers and cooks and bakers. The high cost of the king would be the loss of sons and daughters to the king's service. The king would also consume a large quantity of food, and because it's the king's table, it would be the finest food. The king would tax the people of all that was grown in Israel, and their best grain would go to the king, along with their best fruits from the vineyard and from the groves and a good portion of the fine things that the families used to enjoy would now be taken away and served to the king's servants. And the king's servants also needed to live, so the people would pay for this too. A tenth of the seed and the vines would be given to the servants to plant in their fields, which was the family's fields, the land that the king takes from the people. And the king would also need a staff. So he would take the best people from Israel, the male and the female servants, and he would take the livestock and the donkeys to plow the king's field, all of which the people would supply. And the people granted a king would rule over them, and rule he would. And freedom would be gone. They would cry out to God because the king they chose was oppressing them. And God would not hear them. For they went into slavery with their eyes wide open. Why would they do this? They did it because they were afraid that the price to be paid to the other nations would be greater. They didn't understand that God would protect them 
at no cost if they simply serve God. They didn't want to give up the price of serving God. They didn't want to give up their foreign gods that they worship. They didn't want to worship God alone. They do not want God as their king. And so they sought to replace God and Samuel by having a king like the nations. They assumed that the king would make decisions for them, tell them what to do, and fight their battles. But they forgot that peace and prosperity only come through God. It's not their king who was to be worshipped. It was their God. A king cannot fulfill what God can do. Satan is always seeking to sell us on sin. Satan tries to make us see the great benefits of sin. And he likes to hide the high cost that is the price of sin. In the Garden of Eden, Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing they actually could become like God. And if they ate the fruit, they would not die. Adam and Eve learned about sin and about God, and they understood God. But they were afraid, and they found out that they did die. So when we choose sin... We believe Satan's lies. We think that we can use sin to our own advantage and control it. But we cannot control sin. It gains control of us and we become its slaves. And when we take the path of sin, we learn that the price is too high and the ride is too short. It does not pay. So if the Israelites knew all of this, if they knew that they would be sinning, if they knew that they would be choosing a God, a king who would be against their God, why? Why pay that price? And the reason is, people hate grace. It's detestable and it's loathsome because it is charity. It is love. Grace does not bolster our pride. Grace produces humility. When we pay for something by work or money, we think we own it. We think that when we pay for something, we are in control. But when we receive grace, we are not in control. God is in control. Grace is power given. 
and we cannot dictate how God gives grace to us. We cannot control the benefits of grace. Good old-fashioned work, we think, will cause God to bless us. When we do right things, God must respond. When we are in control, God becomes our servant. That's why we prefer our idols to God, even if we have to carry our idols or put them back up, standing up again. How foolish we are. The Israelites wanted to take a person and put them as king, their God. It didn't work. God's way is to take his son, a person, a man-God, and rule over sin and rule over the earth as the Messiah, as the Christ. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. We must focus on seeking God first and trust God to add all the things that we need. Let us be cautious. Let us let our request be a request and not a demand from God. Amen. Amen.